Well, indeed, tonight there really is very little time to waste. That's because in this Getting to Know the Old Testament series, we're starting to get into some pretty big, serious, hefty, lofty books. Talking about the six big historical books of the Old Testament. That's 1st 2nd Samuel, 1st 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. These books cover a lot of territory. We're spanning now hundreds of years of Israel's history among them. But as you know, we're not simply dealing with history. These books were not merely written to record what happened to Israel in a span of years or in the, over the years. But these are theological works. They're written to tell us something about God and something about his plan for redeeming the world in and through this one nation of Israel. And that's something we want to learn about. There's quite a bit to learn here. I think I may have mentioned last time I was thinking of doing this study as a double header, meaning we would cover 1st and 2nd Samuel tonight as one. And that's because these books were originally written as just one long book. In the original Hebrew Bible, they're just referred to as Samuel, just one book. Only later in the Greek version of the Old Testament was it divided up into two books. The same goes for Kings and Chronicles. But really, when it comes to 1st and 2nd Samuel, we're dealing with one book from one author, It shares central themes, central purpose. It's one unit. And so that's why I I thought about covering it as one, and uh, I was pretty close to doing it. But as I got into my own studying research, I just couldn't do it. There's too much to cover, too much I wanted to cover in both 1st and 2nd Samuel. And so we will split them up. But 1st and 2nd Samuel especially covers so much important ground with both the establishment of the monarchy at the time of the kings in Israel and then getting into the Davidic covenant, which is truly one of the, the top highlights of the entire Old Testament. And instead of just blowing through a ton of material and, and overloading you guys, better to split it up, slow it down, you can grasp more of the significance. That is our aim here, not just to dump a ton of data on you about the Old Testament, but also expose the, the purpose of these books of the Bible help you get to know them better. And I don't want to totally rush through. So tonight, all I'm going to say, we'll just stick with 1 Samuel. Next week, we'll do 2 Samuel. Although I still reserve the right to do 1 and 2 Kings together and 1 and 2 Chronicles together. We'll see as I get into it. I can kind of play that on the fly. But 1 and 2 Samuel, for sure. I mean, there's so much. We've got to take our time with them. Well, for tonight, we're just going to do 1 Samuel. But still, trust me, there's we have Plenty of work cut out for us. There's a lot in just 1 Samuel alone. So without further ado, we, we'll get started into our little study, starting with some of the basic background. The title of this book in the Hebrew Bible was just Samuel. In the Septuagint, this was called First and Second Kingdoms. They split it up into two, called it First and Second Kingdoms. And a little fact that you'll never think about again in the Latin Vulgate, the Latin version of the Bible it gets confusing because what we call 1st, 2nd Samuel, they called 1st, 2nd Kings. What we call 1st, 2nd Kings, they called 3rd and 4th Kings. Don't worry about that. That won't be on the quiz. You'll never need to know that again, but just an interesting side fact of, of how these books have been labeled over the years. For now, we know it as 1st, 2nd Samuel. The author is unknown. The author, compiler, we don't know. Most likely, it was not written by Samuel. He dies midway through the first book. But it probably included portions written by Samuel. Very possible you have writings preserved from Samuel and the prophet Nathan 
and the prophet Gad that were later compiled into 1st 2nd Samuel. We get this from 1st Chronicles 29 verse 29 which says, Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. Likely these prophets wrote during their lifetime and their writings were later compiled by an author into 1st 2nd Samuel. Whoever wrote them, wrote them sometime after the division of Israel and Judah, 931 BC. That's apparent from the writing. The date of events here in 1 Samuel, and really, well, through 2 Samuel, is from the birth of Samuel, around 1110 BC, to the last words of David, 970 BC. So Samuel records about 140 years of Israel's history, while Kings records about twice that amount. Samuel moves much slower through Israel's history, focusing on just three or yeah, three key people, Samuel, Saul, David. But the narration really slows down to emphasize significance. The narrative of Samuel is pretty long. The narrative of Saul is even longer, and the narrative of David is, is the longest, showing you what the attention is paid to the more significant characters. We see David as obviously the highlight here. And the setting of 1st, 2nd Samuel covers a time of transition between Israel's judges to their kings. And if you're with us with judges, we just saw the depth of depravity Israel sunk to in the time of the judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. That, that was the refrain. And Samuel picks up right at that low point. We see that low point right at the beginning. The priesthood of Israel is corrupt. Eli and his sons show us how corrupt the priesthood had become. We see the ark is not in the, in the tabernacle. There's idolatry in the land. The tribes of Israel are divided. They're in open conflict with one another. And Israel is being plagued by all the nations around them. That's the fruit of Israel's lawlessness by not doing things the Lord's way these past 300 years. That said, by the end of 2 Samuel, that situation is entirely reversed. The priesthood is restored. The ark is in the tabernacle. Yahweh is being worshipped in the lands. All the tribes of Israel are united as one nation. And Israel is reigning over the nations around them. It's like a complete reversal in the span of a, a couple of generations. And how, how on earth did such a turnaround take place? Well, no doubt it's the power and grace of God at work, but Samuel records how God used one faithful man, a man after his own heart, to lead his people to righteousness and to this blessing. And I trust you know that one man was David, King David. Really is no shortage of significance here surrounding David. Today, if we rename these books, we'd probably call them First, Second David, but they were instead named after the last judge, Samuel, and the priest, the prophet, and the judge, the one whom the Lord used to bring about the time of the kings. Well, geographically, Samuel takes place right in the middle spine of the Holy Land. It's known as the Central Highlands. It's crazy to think about during this time, Israel controlled very little of Israel, of the Holy Land. They were kind of boxed into the middle portion of, of Palestine. They weren't in control of the coast to the west. That belonged to the Philistines, like you know, Goliath, the Philistines. They controlled the coast. 
And they were in control of the territory to the east of the Jordan. That belonged to the Ammonites. And so Israel was kind of squeezed in the middle. And the major cities of Samuel all are from this middle region. Shiloh, Ramah, Gibeah, Bethlehem, Hebron, Jerusalem. They're kind of stuck in the middle. And speaking of the Philistines and the Ammonites, they were the main opponents of Israel at this time. The other major powers of the region, like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, at this time, they're all in a period of decline. They weren't even leaving their borders. Israel was left untouched. And so all the focus is on these these local players, Israel, the Philistines, the Ammonites. All the action here in 1 Samuel is centered in Israel. All right, so that's just a little background to 1 Samuel. Let's talk purpose. I normally actually begin with these little studies, giving you an outline, a synopsis of the book. I actually first, though, want to go with the purpose. We're going to do a walkthrough and, and do a synopsis of 1 Samuel in a little bit. This time around, I want to equip you in advance just a basic understanding of Samuel's purpose, because that way you're going to far better be able to appreciate all the threads the author weaves throughout this on purpose. When you read First and Second Samuel with this purpose in mind, it really opens your eyes to what's going on here. You see this, this is not just history. It is true history, but it's being recorded and delivered for a purpose, to send a message, to communicate something about God and his plan for the world. That's what we are studying. And when it comes to First and Second Samuel, on the surface, the primary purpose is to show the establishment of a king over Israel. But it, it goes deeper than that. You know, the people demand a king because they want to be like the other nations. And so God gives them Saul. It's the type of king they wanted. But Saul's kingship ends in total ruin and failure. And so instead, after that, by way of contrast, God provides a new archetype king. He shows them what a, a true king, a godly king should look like, and that's David. God raises up a righteous king, a man after his own heart. And then he goes on to establish his covenant with David. He's going to provide for a forever king, an everlasting king who will lead God's people in everlasting righteousness. And that promise, as you know, would find its fulfillment in the greater son of David, Christ, the Messiah. And so, if you didn't know, we find in Samuel some of the most theologically significant passages in the entire Old Testament. You know, it was way back in Genesis, we saw the foundation of God's plan of redemption in something called the Abrahamic covenant, the promises God made to and through Abraham for his plan of salvation for the world. Now it's about a thousand years later, and God is now moving that plan forward. There's a quantum leap moving forward And it comes through what we call the Davidic covenant. These are big highlights in the Old Testament and God's plan. And here in 1st and 2nd Samuel, we're going to get a big dose of of the second one, the Davidic covenant, and learn all about it. Well, let's try and make a concise statement here of of purpose. Purpose in 1st and really 2nd Samuel. How Yahweh established his king over Israel and guaranteed his forever king in his covenant with David. How Yahweh established his king over Israel and guaranteed his forever king in his covenant with David. 1 Samuel tells us about how God established his king, David. And 2 Samuel goes in 
how he's going to make a provision for his forever king through his covenant with David. Now, before we get into a little synopsis of 1 Samuel and show you how it, that purpose moves and weaves throughout, a little bit of a sub-purpose to 1-2 Samuel that you probably never knew about before, but the author is writing clearly from a, a pro-David standpoint. The, part of the reason of this book, or part of the purpose, is to clearly show the legitimacy of David and his lineage as the rightful kings of Israel. The author goes to great lengths to show David did not steal the throne. He's not a usurper of Saul and his line. Saul was the first king. And by custom, who should be the next king? Jonathan, or a descendant of Saul. But the lineage was immediately cut off after Saul and went to David. And then forever after, a son of David was a king of Judah, at least. But the author makes pretty clear, David didn't take the throne, didn't steal the throne. To the contrary, multiple times David refuses to take action against Saul. Two times he could have killed Saul and he refuses to lay a finger on him. He refuses to speak evil of God's anointed. The author is showing that Saul's fall was his own doing and really God's own doing. God took Saul out of the way as a judgment and God put David on the throne. The author is showing lest anyone think David was a renegade who, who seized the throne and you know, got his own way into, into power. No, he really was God's anointed. His reign really is legitimate. God put him on the throne. But don't let that lead you to believe 1st 2nd Samuel is just a propaganda piece written by some pro-David author. It's not. 2nd Samuel is rife with the weaknesses and the failings and the sins of David. This is not like a whitewash of David, like it's only the good things about David. It's it's not. He is a man after God's own heart. He's a man of true faith in Yahweh. That is what sets him apart, and that is why God used him. But Samuel clearly shows, especially the latter half of 2 Samuel, that David is still himself far from that perfect king of righteousness that Israel needs, that, that he's still himself a sinner with his own fall. And that just leaves us at the end, waiting in anticipation, hoping that this son of David, through God's promise, the Davidic covenant, that a son of David will come and be that perfect king of righteousness that the people really needs. And as as, uh, 2 Samuel ends, we're left hoping that's going to be Solomon, this promised seed of David. Here he is, Solomon. And what we learned pretty quick in 1 Kings, it's not Solomon. And in fact, it's no one, none of the kings, but we'll save that lesson for first, second kings. Well, that being said, I think we have enough to go ahead and get into the, the structure now of first and second Samuel, a little bit of an outline. We're only going to cover first Samuel tonight, but I'll give you the, the simplest four-part outline of first and second Samuel, keeping it real simple, real big picture, but four-part outline. You have first Samuel 1 through 15. It's the monarchy established. 1 Samuel 1 through 15, the monarchy established. 1 Samuel 16 through 31 is the rise of David. This tells us how David came to be that king. 1 Samuel 16 through 31. Then 2 Samuel 1 through 10, remember it's just the same book rolling right in. We see the reign of David. From the rise of David to the reign of David. 
But then 2 Samuel 11 through 24, we see the demise of David. It really gets into his sin and the effects of that thereafter, the demise of David. So we'll kind of follow that outline in a big picture form. Again, just now covering 1 Samuel. But what I want to do is just kind of walk you through 1 Samuel, hit the highlights. But I want to show you that the flow of this book, how it fits in with its purpose. It's not just random history. This is true history, but written from a theological standpoint, telling us how God brought about this king and that eventually turned into his promise for a forever king, Messiah, the savior of the world. That's a pretty big deal. And that, that part of that promise starts right here in 1 Samuel. So let's, let's walk through this. We've got that first section in 1 Samuel 1 through 15, the monarchy established. And if you haven't already, Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you want to follow along, you might as well. We're just sticking with one book, 1 Samuel, and flip along with us. We'll look at verses periodically here. But 1 Samuel begins with the birth narrative of Samuel. And it produces great anticipation for a new leader to arise in Israel. It's still the time of the judges. And if you don't know this, go back and read the account of Samson His birth narrative is very similar to Samuel's birth narrative. It's very auspicious birth. There's there's a hope of great things that will be done through this child, this almost promised child. There's a Nazarite vow. No razor will touch his head. That was Samson. That's also Samuel. We're left in great anticipation. Samson was the last judge in Judges. In fact, he's still alive judging at this point when Samuel's being born. Uh, But we know Samson definitely did not turn out to be the judge, the ruler Israel needed. Samson died just a few years before Saul became king, if you didn't know. And we learn in Judges, yes, Samson, he's not the guy. And we wonder, well, is is Samuel going to be the guy? Well, God answers the prayer of, of a lady named Hannah. She's barren. But God gives her a child, Samuel. She dedicates the child to the Lord. She leaves him with Eli the priest at the tabernacle. At that time, it was in Shiloh. Hannah records a song of thanksgiving. And that's a big deal. It's key for setting the tone of the book. There's only a few places of poetry in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and they stand out. This is essentially the Old Testament version of Mary's Magnificat. You know, that the song she sings with the promise of her son, the Christ. And it highlights a huge theme that will run throughout. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Those who are high and lifted up in their mind against God, he will humble them and bring them low. But those who are lowly and meek and confess their need for God to save and deliver, he will hear them. He will lift them up. We'll see that time and time again. God will, in fact, use the weak to shame the strong. And show his glory. And just to highlight this, look at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Just a little highlight from Hannah's song. When, when God answered her prayer and gave her a child. It says, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you. Nor is there any rock like our God. She says in verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. 
The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles to inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. She goes on and the theme continues throughout. It's, it's more of the same. God raises up the needy, that, but those who turn to him, but he will humble and lay low those in pride who go against him. And speaking of it, the last verse, verse 10 in her Thanksgiving song, she says, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them, he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. And so almost prophetic because when Hannah is saying this and this is recorded, there was no king in Israel. But we're already given an anticipation in, in the opening chapters that, well, by the end of this, probably is going to be a king in Israel, an anointed one, a chosen one. And at first, our hope is put in Samuel. We have this boy, Samuel. He's left with Eli the priest. But we quickly see a contrast between Samuel and Eli's sons. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know Yahweh. That's a pretty big deal. I mean, these are priests. They're priests at the tabernacle. They don't even truly know Yahweh. We go on to learn how wicked and corrupt and abusive these sons of Eli were, these priests to the people. They're taking advantage of the people for personal gain, taking their money. They're committing sexual morality at the doorway of the, temp- of the tabernacle. They're just evil. And so God sends a prophet to rebuke Eli. He has allowed his sons to be like this. Chapter 229, he tells him that Eli has honored his sons above God. Chapter 2, verse 30, God says, Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Again, part of the theme of the book. And so the prophet through, or the God through prophet pronounces death on Eli's two sons. He says they're going to die on the same day. Instead, chapter 235 or chapter 2, verse 35, he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart. God is, is starting to turn the ship here in Israel, starting with the priesthood. He's going to give them a faithful priest, a priest after his own heart. Can you guess who that's going to be? It's going to be Samuel. Chapter 3, we find God speaking to this boy Samuel. And that's so significant because for hundreds of years, God has not spoken to anyone in Israel. Now he's speaking to this lowly boy, but he's going to lift him up and make him a priest and a prophet and even a ruler in Israel. Now after this, chapters four through six, you think it's like a little sidebar or an irrelevant story, but it's not. We see a little story surrounding the Ark of the Covenant. Israel is fighting the Philistines and they were using the Ark like a battle charm thinking like, hey, if we just bring this thing with us, we're going to win. Instead, they lose, and the ark is captured by the Philistines. And in the battle, by the way, the two sons of Eli were killed. When Eli hears the news himself, he falls over and breaks his neck, and he dies. This is God cleaning house from the wicked priesthood. The Philistines capture the ark, though. They take it to their cities, 
but it starts wreaking havoc on them. Their idols are mysteriously destroyed. They start getting tumors and breaking out in boils. They realize Yahweh, the God of the ark, is afflicting them. So they decide, we need to get rid of the ark. Send it back. So they send it back to Israel. But there's a purpose to the episode. It's showing the state of the people. They were idolatrous and just as superstitious as the nations around them. They believed Yahweh was like a pagan God who could be manipulated like the other gods. But, but he's not. Yahweh's not like those gods who could be manipulated. He's, he's king. He's the true God. The ark is just a symbol of his presence. He really wants trust and worship from his people. When he doesn't have that, the ark is good for nothing. It, it means nothing. So God allows the ark to be captured. And that is picturing, you might say, a self-imposed exile. The glory of the Lord is departing from Israel when the ark is captured. And it won't come back, and it won't come back to its proper place until when or who? David. The ark comes back, but it never actually enters the tabernacle until the reign of David. That itself is teaching you something. That's for 2 Samuel. At the same time, though, God won't allow the Philistines to triumph over him, even though he allowed the ark to be captured. He's not going to let them get the upper hand, so he indeed judges them through the ark. He's showing he's the real king here. He's not going to be manipulated by anyone. In chapter 7, the ark comes back. Samuel intercedes for the people for their sin and waywardness. He leads the people in repentance. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. For God, God lifts those who humble themselves, cry out to him. Israel does repent. God gives them victory over the Philistines. You find here Samuel He's pretty much acting like a judge. Remember the cycle of the judges? People sin, they're oppressed, they finally humble themselves, cry out to God. He sends a judge, delivers them, their security. Samuel did just that. In fact, look at chapter 7, verse 15. It says, now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Samuel was the last judge. He's not in the book of Judges, but he's the last judge over Israel before the king's. That's what the people need. God knew they needed a faithful prophet, priest, ruler. Samuel was no king, but he was functioning as that ruler, as the last judge. He wasn't a king. If anyone should have been their king, it should have been Samuel. But we find in chapter 8, Samuel himself is rejected by the people. Chapter 8 is a significant chapter. We've seen Samuel serve as a just judge and prophet over the people. The people really need someone righteous to lead them. That's clear so far from the whole Old Testament. Under Moses, they did well. Under Joshua, they did well. Under Samuel, they're doing well. When they don't have a righteous leader, it all goes downhill fast. People, though, come to, in a sense, reject Samuel. And instead of Samuel, they don't want a judge. They don't want Samuel anymore. They demand a king. Because they want to be like the nations around them. They want someone to lead them in military victory. 
Look at chapter 8, verse 7. People demand a king. The Lord says to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which, which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they're doing also to you. Really, they're rejecting God as their king. It's not inherently wrong for the people to want a king. Look, way back in Genesis, God made a promise that a ruler would come forth from Judah. The the scepter would never depart from Judah's hand. And back in Deuteronomy 17, long before the kings, God made a provision for the day when they would be ruled by a king. It's not actually wrong for them to want a king. Rather, what their problem is that their desire for a human king was really expressing their heart's desire of, of rejecting God as their king. They erred in thinking that, you know, the whole reason they were being oppressed by these other nations was because they didn't have a king. That's why they keep losing and suffering. They just need a king. But that is not true. The real reason they were being oppressed by all these nations and losing is because of their sin, their waywardness, their idolatry, because they rejected God as king. The solution to that is repentance and go back to God as your king. But no, they thought a human king was the answer. In reality, though, having a human king wouldn't solve their sin problem. It would just make it worse. Now, God always planned for a human mediator to rule over his people and to lead them to righteousness. But the problem is that that's not just, that Israel didn't want that. That's not what they're looking for. They just wanted a king to make them like the nations. Like verse 19 of chapter 8. It says, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They thought this is the ticket. This is all they need. They don't need a judge anymore. Just give us a king, a military leader, and we'll, be, we'll finally be set. And you know, in other nations, what qualified someone to be king? It's blood, it's lineage. You're the son of the previous king. That, that makes you king. Realize that's a terrible way to choose a king because the next king could be super wicked and then you're all going to suffer. Israel would learn that lesson in First and Second Kings. What really qualifies a king though, in God's eyes, is just a man who fears God, who has true faith in God, who serves God. A man, you might say, after God's own heart. Very shortly here, God's going to put on display for the people what makes for a bad king in the first king he gives to them. He'll give them a king after their own desire and let them see how that works out for them. That's what you get with Saul. And right after chapter 9, who are we introduced to? Saul. the, The search begins for a king. Now, God is choosing Saul. They didn't choose Saul, but God is giving them what they wanted. So he's giving them the king that they so desired. And so who's Saul? Look at chapter 9, verse 2. It says he had a, a, talking about the father, he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. There's not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. This is a guy who's tall, strong, and handsome. He's the type of person 
the world would choose to be their king. But don't forget the theme here in First and Second Samuel. God humbles the proud. He makes low the lofty. Saul is physically tall. That's not a coincidence in God's providence. That's even teaching a lesson. What, what do you think is going to happen to this guy by the end? God humbles the lofty. And we're going to see that through Saul. Anyway, God sends Samuel to anoint Saul as king. Already, though, we see this guy Saul is just kind of dim-witted and spiritually ignorant. Because back in chapter 3, verse 20, it says, All Israel knew Samuel was a prophet and judge in the land. All Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew Samuel was God's prophet. But we find Saul, he's like, he's never heard of Samuel. And his town is five miles from Samuel's town. It's like not that far away, and he doesn't know Samuel is a prophet in Israel. Anyway, Saul is anointed. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. That doesn't indicate salvation here, but simply a filling, an anointing for power to serve a purpose like the judges to deliver the people. You know, it starts off pretty good. Chapter 11, Saul delivers Israel from the Ammonites. We find out, hey, look, Saul, he can function as a military deliverer like the judges. He can be used for a good purpose. But you realize what the people didn't realize. God expects much more from the king. It's not enough to be a military leader. He expects his king to be a spiritual leader, a true worshiper, to lead the people in holiness and faith. And Saul could not live up to those expectations. Well, chapter 7, you get Samuel's farewell address. He knows he's coming to the end of his life. He calls the people basically, fear Yahweh or else. You guys better turn to Yahweh with all your hearts or else. Uh, We find that's not going to describe Saul. Chapter 13, you have the war with the Philistines. The enemy is prevailing. People were waiting for Samuel. Samuel's the, uh, the, this priest and prophet. He was going to come, make sacrifice, intercede for the Lord's favor, that they might have victory in the battle. But he's taken a long time. And so in this battle, Saul gets impatient. The people are starting to desert. So he takes on the role of the priest and offers the sacrifice himself that they can just get to fighting. Seems like a minor infraction. But it shows just how big a deal it is for the king to trust Yahweh completely and obey him completely. This is a turning point. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. Samuel comes and hears what Saul has done. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Look, he says, for now the Lord would have established Your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. All kings are sinners. David would be a sinner too. But the the crux here is that Saul was not a man of faith. Evidenced by not being a man of obedience. He did not seek the Lord. You know, chapter 14 continues, we see Saul as a weak, foolish, foolhardy leader. He doesn't have sound judgment or spiritual insight. He's not a man of God. He doesn't have the spiritual wisdom required to lead God's people. Chapter 15, his disobedience continues. And he once again fails to fully obey the Lord by, 
by fully striking down the Amalekites. Saul rationalizes his actions as if his ways are better than God's ways. And that, that's just what you get with Saul. He's a man of, of pragmatism and he's really just doing things his way. He's not really that concerned with God and God's ways. And we find in the end it's because he feared the people more than God. Chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel rebukes him again. He again failed to fully obey the Lord. Samuel said, this is a well-known verse, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than to fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is the final verdict on Saul. His disobedience, evidencing his lack of faith, his lack of heart for God is as enough. And this is God fully rejecting Saul from being this chosen king. He's not going to be the king through whom God will bring about his greater king. So the Lord is turning away from Saul. Keep in mind, this is all before David. We don't even know David at this point. This is the author just subtly reminding us that Saul was rejected as king by God long before David came on the scene. David didn't steal the throne. Saul lost the throne all on his own just because he rejected Yahweh. And now Yahweh is rejecting him. David did not cause Saul's downfall. He did that all by himself by not seeking the Lord. We do get a contrast though with David. Chapter 16. We enter now the second section. Remember chapters 1 through 15? The establishment of the monarchy. Now the time of judges is over. And that's a big 300 year chunk of Israel's history. It's over. Now we've just entered the time of the kings. Saul is king, the first king. But here in chapters 16 through 31, we see the rise of David. One of, if not the most significant figure in the Old Testament, the rise of David. And now we find the narrative shifting to David. Saul will decrease. David will increase to the point where by the end of the book, Saul is dead and David will be king. That, that's where this one ends. But this is all God's doing. We'll see how clear that is. It's not David's doing or even Saul's doing. This is all God's doing. He's orchestrating this to bring about his chosen king. Chapter 16, right after Saul is rejected, God sends Samuel to go anoint the new king. Saul's still king, but in God's eyes, he's anointing the real king. Chapter 16, verse 1, Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him for being king over Israel? Fill your heart horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've selected a king for myself among his sons. So Samuel goes, checks out Jesse. He looks at his sons. He too naturally thinks, oh, the oldest, the tallest, the strongest. Surely this is the one God has chosen. But if you know the story, no. God chose the runt of the litter. Literally the youngest, tiniest, weakest of the sons. David. That's because, verse 7, another key verse. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him for God sees not as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at 
the heart. And so last of all, God's choice falls on David. Again, see the contrast. Saul, tall, strong, handsome. David, young, short, ruddy. He's the runt of the litter. But what's the theme? God brings down the lofty. He will diminish the proud and the arrogant and the tall, so to speak. But he will lift up the poor, the meek from the ash heap. He will raise up the humble and the weak. So you guys looking at each other. I know you're tall. I'm tall too. Thankfully, it's not literal. You can still be tall in a Christian. It's okay. But David, though physically short, was short in heart as well. And just humble. He was truly a young man, even a youth, a young man after God's own heart. He's anointed as king. Now, chapter 17 is the famous chapter, David and Goliath. Not just a story. There's purpose here. It, it happened, but there's purpose. Familiar story. We're not going to cover it. It has some important insights. For one, it's showing Saul's failure as a king. Remember, the, the people wanted him as a king to lead them in battle. But here, Saul is already at the point of cowering in fear. He is the one who should be challenging Goliath. He's the tallest one. He's the strongest warrior. He doesn't challenge Goliath. He's cowering, afraid, not leading his people in battle. I mean, even the one they chose to be king for this reason is failing them. You contrast this with this kid, David, this little young adult, this kid, this shepherd boy. He hears how Goliath who's a literal giant, is slandering Yahweh. He's outraged. It's not arrogance, but he has confidence in the Lord. Chapter 17, verse 36. He wants to go into battle. He's talking to Saul and he says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and may the Lord be with you. It's not arrogance. It's just confidence. It's it's faith. David is not trusting in his skill, his ability. God has delivered him before. He's recognized Yahweh's deliverance before, and he knows by faith it'll happen again. And so off he goes. You know the story, without armor, without sword, He slays Goliath. Again, a literal giant versus a kid. God brings down the lofty, but raises up the the meek, the lowly, who depend on him, who have faith in him. Already, though, we see the contrast between David and Saul. After this point, there's a shift. Now, Saul pretty much wants to kill David. For the rest of the book, there's jealousy, there's fear, there's ego. But already, very quickly, he's starting to plot to have David killed. He sees David as a rival. Chapter 19, he's already finding ways to have David killed three times. Now, you might expect David to have a rivalry with Saul's son, Jonathan, who's the heir to the throne. Here's a a kind of a switch. It doesn't happen. In fact, they form a tight friendship. Chapter 18, chapter 20, Saul, or David and Jonathan, Saul's son, form a covenant, a brotherhood together. And it's significant because Jonathan, who was a man of God, a man of faith, recognized David was a greater man of God and man of faith and that he was God's chosen, the new anointed one, that God was going to do great things through David because of his faith. 
Jonathan shows loyalty to David, not his father. He goes on to give David his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow. That's essentially an abdication by the crown prince of his rightful heir to the throne. He recognizes God's chosen David to lead. And this only incites Saul further against David, as you can imagine. Now, we'll kind of try and wrap it up here. Time is going. But chapters 21 through 23, another important episode showing the difference between Saul and David. David's on the run. Saul's trying to kill him. And he stops by Nob. His soldiers, he's got a few soldiers. They're, They're starving. They got no food, so they take the consecrated bread from the priests. Something to eat. Later, Saul hears about it, how the priests let them have the food. He's outraged. And so he orders that all of the priests be slain. These are real priests. These are priests of Yahweh. And he orders them all to be killed. None of his soldiers will do it. They're like, we're not going to kill a priest. And so a man named Doeg the Edomite, he's not an Israelite. He wants to curry favor with Saul. So he kills him. He kills 85 priests. And then they go on to kill the whole town. Men, women, children. They eliminate the town. This shows a major contrast King, King Saul should be a worshiper of God, one who respects the priests. Back then, under a priesthood, were to respect the priesthood. But instead, Saul is using his power to oppress God's people and even oppose the men of God. Meanwhile, though, by contrast, we see in chapter 23, during this time, David's still on the run after Nob, but the Philistines, the other enemies, they're oppressing a city of Israel. So what does David do? Even though he himself is on the run from Saul, he takes his guys and he says, you know what, let's go deliver the city. You know, while we're at it, why not? Let's go deliver the city. So he's just got 600 men with him, but they go and they defeat the Philistines. They deliver a city of Israel. What's going on here? David is acting like the king. He's doing what the king is supposed to be doing, delivering his people going to the aid of his people in need. Meanwhile, Saul is oppressing and killing his people for his own namesake. The contrast is clear. Next, in chapters 24 through 26, they really show how and reinforce. We already know at this point, there's, David's going to be king. Saul's on his way out. But these chapters make clear, David didn't steal the throne. This is not David's doing. This is God's doing. Because we learn on Two separate occasions, Saul was pursuing David to kill him. But two times, David manages in in a stealthy way to get right to Saul, where if he wanted, he could have just killed him right then and there. But he doesn't. He refuses. He won't touch the Lord's anointed. He's still the king. He won't do it. So he just cuts off a piece of his robe, or in the other case, takes his spear. Later, shows himself to Saul and says, basically, like, hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Because I trust God and you're the anointed. And momentarily, Saul is humbled and lets David go and calls off the manhunt. Doesn't last long, but this just goes to show David's non-aggression towards Saul. Saul is the one constantly trying to kill David, not the other way around. David's friends and allies are urging him to kill Saul, but he won't do it. So he, he can, continues to say, like, he's trusting Yahweh. God will work this one out, but not by his hands. He's not going to make this happen. 
who can say David stole the throne? You've got a person like this who's refusing to touch Saul. Who can even argue that, that he did this by himself? Now, David really was a man after God's heart. He had real faith in Yahweh. Yahweh had anointed him as king. And David, David knew that. And he's fully trusting God to bring that about. He's not going to scheme. He's not going to make it happen. If he's going to be king... It's, it's going to be God's doing. And he's, he's a man of true faith. He's just letting it unfold and trusting the Lord. But he's not going to do wrong to make something happen. Not going to take matter into his own hands, even though his life is on the line. That is faith. And it makes us wonder, if you were in that situation, what would you do? Would you just get rid of Saul, become king, just be done with it? Or put yourself at the mercy of the person trying to kill you because you trust God that much? Well, just to finish up here, David continues to flee from Saul. Saul, meanwhile, becomes fully hardened against David, trying to kill him. He even turns to necromancy to try and find answers and guidance, trying to call up the dead to find, you know, what should I do here? He's so hardened from the Lord and turned away his heart from the Lord. He's seeking the occult to try and find guidance. He's been fully handed over. The final two chapters... You see the final contrast. Chapter 30. This whole time, David has essentially been living in exile in enemy territory, fleeing from Saul, but he's still acting as a righteous king. The Amalekites are oppressing Israel. Remember the two enemies, the Philistines, the Ammonites, or the Amalekites. They kind of go both ways. But anyway, the Amalekites are oppressing. So what does David do? He pursues them. He overtakes them. He destroys them. He's doing what the king should be doing, and he's doing it the right way. He inquires of the Lord. He doesn't rush a sacrifice. He waits for a word from the Lord. God blesses and says, go enter this battle. It's his will. And unlike Saul, David recognizes that the victory belonged to the Lord. So he shares the spoil with everyone, even the non-combatants. He's truly a king looking on the best interests of his people, serving the Lord. Meanwhile, Saul is fighting the Philistines. So on one side of the nation... David's, you know, fighting people to the east, the Ammonites, the Amalekites. At the same time, the exact same time, Saul is off fighting the Philistines to the west. But what a contrast. The Philistines are winning the battle. They're overtaking Israel. I mean, David just had a few hundred men, and they're taking people down. But Saul, with the whole army, they're losing to the Philistines. And again, this was their king that they chose. Why'd they choose him? To lead them in battle. Like, you're the big strong guy. You're supposed to make us win these battles, but it's not working. David, just a few soldiers, is winning. This is why the people said Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. But the battle turns against Saul. He's wounded by an archer. He knows his time is short. He doesn't want to be captured, so he falls on his own sword. He actually dies, in the end, by suicide. Israel flees. And the Philistines come and live in their cities. They lose a chunk of land because of this battle. This is not a glorious end to Israel's first king. It's kind of like the worst way it could go. What a sad, pathetic end to Israel's first king. This is what the people wanted, though. This is what they asked for. They wanted a king like the nations to fight their battles. And, well, that's what they got. But it didn't turn out the way they hoped. It didn't turn out so well. And this is how 1 Samuel ends. It picks up in 2 Samuel with David learning of Saul's death and will soon become anointed as king. 
We'll save that for next time. But even still, even with just reflecting on 1 Samuel, you learn quite a lot. In 1 and 2 Samuel, definitely made to go together. Their themes and purposes are shared, but already you can see what, what God is doing here. This is how Yahweh established his king over Israel and guaranteed his future king, his forever king, and his covenant with David. This covenant part is coming in 2 Samuel. It's so significant because of who David is. We'll save that for next time. But 1 Samuel is going to show how God established his chosen king, David, in Israel. And that king was not Saul. He's the first king, but he's not the chosen king. David was. Why, though? Why David, not Saul? Why did the Messiah come as a promised son of David, not a promised son of Saul? Theoretically, it could have been, but it wasn't. Why not? That's what you're meant to wonder and question and find an answer to in 1 Samuel. What is the answer? It's crystal clear. It's just David was a man after God's own heart. It's a man of true faith. He's a worshiper who's humble. He was lowly, not just physically short, but he was one who just lived in dependence on his God. We call that faith. And that led to obedience. We call that faith lived out. That's all God is looking for. God's looking for a king who would reign as if God is king, because he is. He's just looking for a mediator king who will reign over the people as if God is the real king. Because he is. That was not Saul. He's the one the people wanted, but he was self-willed. And he would only make things worse for Israel. It doesn't matter how big and strong and successful and mighty a person is. God doesn't look at outward appearance. He looks at the heart. Saul was found wanting. First Samuel makes clear that David really was the king of God's choosing. That God put David on the throne. And start to finish, it, it labors to show he didn't steal the throne. Even the ending, at the same time where Saul is in battle that will take his life, makes clear to show at the same time David was in another battle. He wasn't even in that part of the country. He was somewhere else. So he did not like assassinate the king. He was not responsible for Saul's death. In the end, Saul was responsible for Saul's death. David was vindicated. First Samuel, though, sets up the legitimacy of David as king and the Davidic lineage, but not by his hand, by God's hand. This really is God's chosen line. Next time, we'll see how God turns that into an everlasting lineage with an everlasting promise. And you think First Samuel is significant, and it is, but it's nothing compared to Second Samuel when we get to that Davidic covenant. That'll be a big focus for next time where how God shows through David, this man of of faith, man of God, he will usher in promises for a truly perfect, righteous, everlasting mediator king over his people forever. We are still worshiping that one, that king. And you want to learn how that came to be? Well, that's next time with 2 Samuel. To finish now, just a few notes of application as we got to wrap it up. It should be pretty clear for one, as you read for Samuel, by way of application, humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before God. In First Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
It says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. It sounds like that verse could have come from 1 Samuel. That's a big theme here. Why is that the case? Because it gives God the glory, the, the proud, the lofty who do things their way for their name's sake are, are essentially trying to rob God of the glory that belongs to him. We are every breath to him. Who are you to think you're great? And he will show, you know, his name is great and worthy to be praised. He will humble the proud, but he will lift up the lowly, the meek, the humble. So, well, humble yourself before your God. And secondly, depend on him. Therefore, depend on God. In humility, you recognize your place before God, your maker. So therefore, like David, you depend on him. You call to him. You cry out to him. You realize that in itself is an act of faith. You're confessing your need for God. You're not enough. You're not strong enough to fight this battle or to deliver yourself or your family. You don't have the answers. You're not sufficient. But God is. He's enough. He's glorified when his people believe he's enough and then depend on him as if he's enough. We see how God delights in lifting the poor from the ash heap, delivering the needy and the weak who cling to him. The one who goes to him in a humble faith, he's not going to cast out. We see this from Hannah to young David, even to wayward Israel. When they repent, God delights in rescuing his people when they call on him. But from Saul, we learn if you go your own way and you seek to just do things your own way for your own purposes and you depend on yourself and not on God, you can expect ruin and disaster in the end. And so grow in your faith. Whatever you need, whatever your need is, just depend on God. And then lastly, third little lesson we might derive would be to obey God. It's not earth shattering, but that's the kind of heart knowledge we need to be reminded of. You need to obey God. God's pleased by faith. We're saved by faith. But remember, true faith works itself out, and it does so through obedience, by actually obeying God. Faith works, and it will result in obedience to God from the heart. That's why it's true that to obey is better than to sacrifice now, going through the rituals of a sacrifice, that's easy. Anybody could do that. I could pay someone to do that. God doesn't care about that. He wants your heart given to him in true love and worship. That's being a man or a woman after God's heart. And that heart will expose itself in obedience. That's how God spells love. We're called to serve him. You know, we're not part of national Israel. We're not under their kings, but... We're still under the reign of a son of David, Christ, you know, the Messiah. We have a king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Christ now is our king. And as Americans, by heritage, we're anti-king, right? America was born out of being anti-king. We will not have a king over us. Nationally, that's true. That's fine. But don't take that too far because as citizens of heaven, we still have a king. We serve Christ as king. The greater son of David has come. God made a provision for a perfect, sinless, righteous son of David to come and perfectly rule over his people and lead them in paths of everlasting righteousness. That is Christ. 
And so in the same token, therefore, obey Christ. Serve Christ as your king. And see, do you even think of him as the king of your life? It's probably to our disadvantage as Americans that we don't have a king because we lose the concept. But he's a sovereign. When his will goes forth, your will is irrelevant. He's the king. And that's Christ to us. Thankfully, he's a good king. And his will is perfect. It's designed for our flourishing and our good. And only behooves us to obey him. But you have to do that. Go to him. Recognize him as Lord. And pay homage to the Son. Like Psalm 2.12 says, Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thankfully, we know the end of the story. The good king has come. If you're in Christ and you take refuge in him by the faith, the faith of David, you too will be blessed. So may you grow in your faith as we reflect on the lessons of 1 Samuel. All right, well, we'll see you back next time for 2 Samuel. You don't want to miss that in the Davidic covenant. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, it always amazes us to study your word and just to peer at that your divine hand of providence guiding history. It's all fact. This is the history of Israel, but we see your hand orchestrating events to, to teach us something. And as the New Testament affirms, these, these things, these stories were written for our edification as well, showing us how you've worked in and through history to bring about your plan and your purposes, even for us today. And that comes through a king. You always designed to give your people a king. They needed a righteous ruler, and so do we. Left to our own devices, we see where that gets us. Far worse than Saul, we too would be lost, depraved, wicked, astray, going after ourselves. But Lord, you knew we needed a king to save us and lead us in paths of righteousness. We thank you for sending a man like David to lead your people, but we thank you for sending a greater son of David, a perfect king who, who died in our place, actually paid for our sins, rose from the dead, made us righteous by a new birth, and will one day return. The king will return to lead us in a kingdom of righteousness. We long for that day. But we thank you. We exalt you for what you have done, the plan you've revealed. And I pray now, and in the meantime, as we live as citizens of that kingdom, that we obey. We follow the king. We exalt the king. We, we bow down to the king. And that, though, we will be only blessed. So motivate us to live lives of thankful obedience to Christ our King. In his name we pray. Amen.